Well, greetings. Welcome to the Divine Line. We snuck the third one in for the week. Um, that may have to make up for next week. Um, since we've got Thanksgiving on Thursday, I hope I hope you're going to have a wonderful time with your family. Um, it is a distinctly Christian celebration. It really, really is. Um, the fact that it is part and parcel of um, of what was once American culture uh, does speak to the Christian consensus that once existed. The fact that, for example, uh, um, during the Civil War, uh, both sides called upon their people to pray for um, the nation and and things related to that. Uh, very, very important. Um, but anyway, uh, it's a it's so distinctively Christian. It is so anti-secular. It really is. Uh, it's just, there, there is no foundation in a secular worldview for thanks for anything. Fizzing bags of chemicals, ugly bags of mostly water, do, uh, do not have anything to be thankful for. They, they exist for a while in a random universe and cease to exist for no reason and no purpose. And no one's ever going to care. And the universe is pitiless, pitiless and merciless. And there's no reason to have absolutely positively any uh, Thanksgiving in, in any of that. And uh, yet we have Thanksgiving. And I know this Thanksgiving dinner is going to cost a whole lot more than it ever has before. I, uh, I understand that. I get that. But... Um, there you go. I'll be I'll be very very honest with you. I I think, you know, I love the Christmas Carol. Um, what we used to do in my family years and years ago was we um, we still have I have it on my phone. In fact, I have uh, the MP3 recording of uh, was it Olivier that did it? I'd have to look it back up. But my parents had a. 33 RPM, Summer, it's called Vinyl, uh, Vinyl Record. <laughs> First time I ever showed Summer the word vinyl. She said, vinyl. <laughs> it's like, yeah. A vinyl record of The Christmas Carol. It's only half an hour long. So that's, that's a very rapid version of Dickens' classic. And it breaks right in the middle because he had to turn the record over. Uh, remember turning records over? Uh, oh yeah, you bet. And, uh, <clears throat> on Christmas Eve, we would turn all the lights out except for the Christmas tree. And we would, we would put on Christmas Carol <coughs> and halfway through somebody would have to get up and turn the record over and uh, listen to the backside and all the pops and hisses and cracks that you get with uh, a wonderful record, which I know they've become popular again. There's record stores and well, nine arts. It's, Really weird. Yeah, you don't get it either, huh? Okay. Well, I mean, I've still got, there's lots of 33s right through that wall right there. Um, and then they pretty much, yeah, since when, when, I don't know, since they're all 1940s big band stuff, you know. But I, I recorded everything I wanted to record out of there onto, you know, I bought a turntable, it plugs into your computer, MP3'd all of them. Anyway, uh, we would, we would, uh, we would do that. And it, it was just such, I have a feeling, 
I have a very strong feeling that we are going to have to become very thankful for simple things in the future. We have been uh, very pampered. We have lived the lives of kings and queens. And you may not realize that, and certainly the young generation does not realize that. But we, we had those blessings for a reason. And our culture has utterly rejected the foundations that gave us what we have today. And I believe we're going to lose those things. And I've just been doing a lot of thinking about how I think a lot of Christians identify God's blessing in their life, not with the true blessings that scripture identifies to us. Um, those people around us, daily needs. We, we, define, we define blessings and luxuries as daily needs. We really do. We really, many of us are going to have to really rethink. And I'm talking to myself. I am preaching to myself. Uh, there are so many of God's children that live. I saw a video. In fact, I sent it to a friend of mine. It just happened to pop up on Twitter. Twitter's become a much more interesting place over the past few weeks for some reason. Um, but it was a family of, I think, seven. I think I counted seven. Looked like India, Pakistan, somewhere around there. They were getting on a motor scooter. I guess it was a motorcycle, mainly. A small thing. They got a family of seven on the motorcycle. And you're just like, how did they do that? And, you know, we look at it and go, that just isn't safe. Well, no, it's not. It's it's not. Um, but God has his children that that's how they get around if they can get around at all. And um, I just wonder how many of us would be strongly questioning God's goodness were we to live in those situations. Because we are, we are so accustomed to the many, many blessings that we have. Um, th- I, I'm, I'm not the only one thinking about these things. I am not the only one thinking about these things. Um, but I'll, I'll be honest, it, it wasn't what I was looking forward to in my golden years, you know? I mean, I've always recognized I, you know, when people talk about retirement, I'm like, what? <laughs> that's, that's never really been, that was never really been something that's part of my vocabulary or my understanding of the time I have in this world. Um, and especially looking back on, those in the past who have had an impact on this world. Um, many of them, you know, Calvin was carried out of the pulpit bleeding from the nose um, and died shortly thereafter. So, uh, but still, I just wonder. And for me, it's, it's a matter of, of prayer, Lord. 
you, you look at you, you look at Paul's words to the Philippians. When I'm in abundance, when I'm suffering lack, Christ is good, God is good in all of it. And um, you can say you're going to have that attitude. <laughs> uh, but after, you know, three years of it, that's when you find out whether you really, really have that attitude. And every time I start thinking about that, I, I can't help but thinking about the hiding place. And I can't help but thinking about the conversations that were recorded for us there from Ravensbrück in the midst of the some of the worst nightmares that mankind's ever created. And uh, you, you, you think about that. You really, you really, really do. Anyway, uh, so I hope you are, are looking forward to Thursday. I'm not going to give you a sermon on how many uh, places Eucharisteo occurs in the New Testament. All of that would be very, very worthwhile. I'm not saying don't do that. Uh, that's just not on the, um, on the plate today. During the last program, where I had specifically addressed the uh, Disrespect for Marriage Act, uh, the 12 Republicans joined the Democrats in disrespecting marriage. I know it hasn't technically passed yet. It will be after Thanksgiving before the Senate, in essence, calls upon God to destroy our nation (laughs) once again, Um, because that's that's what they're doing. Um, the founders would have recognized that. I, I, I sometimes wish you could, you could just somehow bring, bring the men who crafted the constitution back and show them what has been done, uh, since then. I, I think they would be absolutely astonished and, and would, would probably wonder how God's judgment has been suspended for so long. To be honest with you, I, I think that's probably what would what would take place in that situation. But um, so the cloture thing was passed, and I think both Republican senators from I think it was North was it North Carolina um, voted for this abomination. Romney, of course, <laughs> uh, and the other Democrats who pretend that they're Republicans all voted for it as well, and. Um, and the one guy from Missouri who has a master's degree from a Baptist university, which just tells you, and in fact, uh, was a president of a Baptist university before he, was, before he entered into politics. Uh, <clears throat> he did the same thing. Some of you saw uh, this Zach Lambert guy on, uh, on Twitter. He gets around a good bit. I'm not sure why he keeps popping up in, in my feed. Same thing with Thomas Horrocks, who I had gone back and forth with a little bit a few years ago. He's all of a sudden popped up in my, my feed as well. But looking at leftist, uh, leftist Christians on this subject and how susceptible they are, and there are a lot of, look, this is part of, the, this is part of our culture. I think one of the reasons, and ask yourself this question, okay? Ask yourself this question. Uh, Lambert went through about how he had come to know uh, LGBTQ Christians. Okay, immediately we go, wait. (laughs) 
Uh, the term Christian needs to be defined, and we need to know where we can derive a definition of it from. And someone who simply calls himself a Christian, who, well, think, think of the phone call uh, on the last program. Fellow called in, I've got these young guys, they, they love Jesus, but they don't want to go to church. And what was my response? My response was, well, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's something about love that includes respect. And when you're talking about loving a Lord, a king, a master, these are all terms used with Jesus, which obviously we don't define in the English language in the United States with the same uh, gravity that they were in Jesus's day. Another reason why it's important to interpret scripture in its own context, you know, what the author intended to communicate. Stuff. Um, anyway, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I, you call me Lord, Lord. But you don't do what I say. What? How does that even work? It's not, even, that, not supposed to work that way. So when we talk about, well, these people love Jesus. Well, if you love Jesus, your first and foremost concern is to know what Jesus is all about and how that impacts you. So in that case, you know, Jesus talked about baptism. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. These are commands of Jesus. And if you love him, not just the idea of him, but actually want to go, I want to know everything that Christ commanded. And there's only one place to find that, by the way. Um, you're not going to find it in the traditions of men. You're going you're to find that in inspired scripture. There's, there's nothing else to tell you. Um, then that's the person you take seriously who says, I want to love Jesus. But that, what that means is there's a lot of people who love having feelings, religious feelings, but they don't want to confront their own lusts and their own desires. They don't want to let go of the things that they treasure in reality more than Jesus. And so when, when people say, oh, you know, I, I once read 1 Corinthians 6, I once read 1 Timothy chapter 1, and yeah, you know, I, I know in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's really following the Ten Commandments there, and he, he puts homosexuality right, right there where adultery is in the Ten Commandments. So yeah, it's part of the sexual sins, and yeah, clearly that's apostolic interpretation, and uh, you know, yeah, I, I, I get all that, but then I got to know some of these folks. And I immediately want to say, you got to know them. Did the word repentance ever come up? No, no, no. I just wanted to, I just felt so much love. Do you hear yourself? Do you hear what's happened to your thinking? This is why there is such embarrassment. And, and folks, there is. And I'll bet you, you have it in your own church. I'll bet you, not all of you, but I bet a lot of you have it in your own church. 
embarrassment at what the Old Testament says about God's wrath against the Canaanites, the Amorites, against his own people. How many times when we read of God bringing plagues against Israel during the Exodus, for example, and thousands of people die? don't hear a lot of sermons about that. Especially not in progressive churches, huh? But then you have just wholesale destruction of entire nations. And people don't want to deal with the fact that God brings his wrath to bear. It is once you remove that from the narrative, you're left with nothing but sentimentality. And that's what people want. They want sentimentality. They want all the warm, gushy feelings. But they don't want anything that would actually change anyone so that they're more like Christ. And so, you know, um, the theologians who would prefer to translate Hilasmos in the New Testament as expiation rather than propitiation, because propitiation has within it, as a Latin term, the concept of appeasing the wrath of God, and there's really no wrath. We don't, we're not going to worship a wrathful God. So let's, let's come up with a different term. This is the mindset, and it has infected so many of us. It has infected so many of us that we sometimes don't even recognize it. And so you can listen to Zach Lambert talk about his transition into a fully affirming Christian. And what should the primary uh, foundation of such a change be? I I discovered that I had completely... I I continue to believe in sola scriptura and tota scriptura. I want to I want to believe everything that the Word of God teaches. That's not their foundation. That's what you'd expect to hear. I discovered that in reality, arsenicoites doesn't mean, but that's but it does mean that. <laughs> and there's there's no way around it. You can you can blow bubbles and throw sand and and fire up the fog machines on Max. And try to try to hide it, but you can't change the meaning of the term, where it came from in Leviticus 18 and 20. It's there, can't be denied. But instead, it, it's, it's an emotional thing. Let me just point out to you, if you talk to someone about the love of God before you talk about repentance, you have it backwards, and Jesus didn't do that. First message he delivers in his, in his uh, ministry. Repent. Kingdom of God's at hand. Not, oh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, God so loved the world that he did something. But that something results in repentance. Obeying his commands. 
That's not work salvation. If you think it's work salvation, you just don't even have no concept of what the New Testament message really is. I know there are people like that. Oh, it's just believe. Don't worry about it. No, no repentance. Embarrassing. Very, very embarrassing that those folks are still out there. But they are. But we are facing a situation where with the passage of this bill, trust me, this this isn't about enshrining Obergefell. I mean, they'll do that. But they already had Obergefell. This will be, this, just like the Equality Act, same thing. This will be the foundation for getting rid of tax-exempt status for churches, going after homeschooling. You, you, we keep warning everybody, and then five years later, it happens, and people are like, wow, how'd you see that coming? It's like, well, because it's this freight train and it's got a big old light on the front. It's going, hong, 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 and it just ran over you and splattered you all over the place. And now you're shocked. Great. Um, that's, that's what we're, that's what we're up against. Um, so keep that in mind. Oh, by the way, um, that's probably what this is. Oh, no. Um, oh, that's going to be interesting to read. Anyway. After right after the program uh, today, uh, well, not right after, but if we get if we get done to the normal time or close to normal time within an hour afterwards, uh, I'm going to be jumping online and and doing a study on uh, election uh, with our brother, the other Paul, uh, down in Australia, and that's one of the reasons I'm wearing a kuji today. Is uh, I've been told that he's not going to provide a live translation because he's Australian. And often you, you need translation. So I thought maybe wearing an authentic Kuji from Australia will help me to translate the Australian and we'll be able to communicate a little bit better. It's best I can do because he's not going to provide live translation while we're doing this. So, uh, I, I know they call it English down there, but it's just a bit of a challenge. You know? So we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. So uh, there's, a, um, there's a YouTube. I, I tweeted it. There's a YouTube link, and you can grab that, and we will be doing our thing uh, in, an, well, an hour and 37 minutes, specifically, is uh, when we will uh, be doing that. <laughs> my my poor daughter just uh, tweeted that uh, sickness has invaded the house and um, uh, it's it's rough when you got a little one. He's not sick, thankfully, uh, but everybody else is. So it's uh, I'm sure it's. I hope we didn't bring it back with us from the uh, the leadership thing, but you, you never know; it's possible. Uh, I'm not going to spend too much time on this next one. I've been tweeting about it a little bit. Uh, as you know, uh, Cameron Bertuzzi um, announced his up. I guess it's upcoming reception because it's Easter, but he's in RCIA classes and he's swum the Tiber. And I'm like, yeah, I said you're going to do that sometime in 2020. And um, 
he said to me this morning, I guess, well, it's because of the Bible. And I'm like, oh, don't give me that. Don't give me that. It's not because of the Bible. Eliakim. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Jesus has those keys, buddy, and you know it, and there ain't no way around it. That's what Revelation 3, 7 says. And that wasn't even the, even an argument in the early church. I mean, it is one of the lamest, shallowest, easiest refuted, refuted but we've done the study. Yeah, 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 yeah. I could tell, and I said this, and people jumped all over me for it. I thought, come on, you're so harsh. I could tell in 2020, and I think it was like May, if I recall. So it's been, a, it's been two and a half years. I could tell then that the young man had no foundation in himself, in his own theology, for not being a Roman Catholic. He did, he did not understand the Reformation. He didn't understand the reasons of the Reformation. He did not have any commitment to the imputed righteousness of Christ. He did not have a commitment to a, a Reformed doctrine of grace. And just the, the way he was playing footsie then, it was obvious to me. And I said it. And you know, other people later on, when, yeah, it's, it really seems like he's playing around. So, no, it's, this is obvious from the start. He's just, he's just bilking it for everything to you know, get all this attention before he finally you know, throws the switch. And then I guess I heard somebody saying that, that you know, he's talking about, well, you know, you know, this may cause me to shut down my ministry because, you know, and it's, and it's like, yeah, you should. You have no reason to be doing apologetics. And you don't seem, it's, these converts get the idea that they're going to be just so praised for coming home to Mother Church that they're just going to be put in positions of leadership immediately. It doesn't work that way. I mean, some events should do that. Han, Mattatix was, and now he's off who knows where in the world Jerry is these days. But there's, there's been lots of celebrity converts, but they're a dime a dozen. So, <laughs> yeah, anyway, uh, look, the fact of the matter is, if, if you don't, people, there, there are a bunch of Protestants paddling around in the middle of the Tiber River. Okay, maybe they're, you know, they're paddling around, they don't have their feet firmly planted on the shore. Maybe they're over in the Bosporus, okay, Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, maybe they're uh, in the Tiber. Um, I don't know what river is close to Canterbury. Um, but, and I, I'm only talking about just the most, I'm not talking about the conservative Anglicans and stuff like that that still believe in justification. There are a lot of people who are what they are, not because they, they know why they are what they are. There's a lot of people in our churches that way. There, there's a very large number of people who don't know why they are not Roman Catholics. Of course, there's more Roman Catholics that don't know why they're not Protestant. <laughs> they, you know, they've never really thought through it. That's sort of the majority perspective. But once you start getting involved in like apologetics and things like that, you're going to get hit with that stuff. You're going to have to find out if you have a foundation. And if you don't have a foundation, you, you know, let, let's, let's see where, where 
where this fella is in two years from now and five years from now, because I've seen, I've seen a lot of converts and a lot of them don't end up in happy places. They really don't. And thankfully I've talked with converts and they weren't the ones that tried to make a big splash and stuff like that. I've talked to a lot of converts that tested the waters and went, okay, no, 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 wrong. Oops. Mistake. I damaged my testimony. I've damaged my family, but I'm going to do the right thing and swallow my pride and get back to where I should be. And uh, there you go. So, you know, people are all up in arms and I'm like, there's nothing new about any of this. Uh, and then last night, uh, Trent Horn and I exchanged with you, you know, he was, he decided to jump in on some comment and look, if I said, look, I, he went after soul scriptura and I'm like, you know, this is not the best time Trent for you to be going after solo scriptura, because you see, You've got a pope um, who uh, gave the mass to Nancy Pelosi, knowing that Nancy Pelosi's bishop had told her not to present herself for the sacrament. He undercut that bishop and undercut the teachings of the church. And everybody knows it. You can, you can go, but that's not a fellow. But you, you, can, you can play the I'm stupid game all you want. But you know what Francis was doing and you know, the message he was sending and he just placed two pro-life pro-choicers on Vatican councils. You, you know, it's a scandal, you know it. So don't sit there and be, be doing the sola scriptura blueprint for anarchy foolishness. Okay. You guys have got Oh, many problems at home that I really think humility would make you go, you know, I think we ought to be turning our apologetic emphasis on ourselves and trying to make some, you know, I pointed out uh, my church would do discipline on anybody doing what Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden are doing, promoting the murder of unborn children. They would not be members of our church. Your church does not have the commitment to do that. It just doesn't. Your, your Pope knows what, what these guys are doing. You know he knows what he's doing. And in, in somewhere in your heart, you know he probably actually supports what they're doing. Because he's from South America, okay? You know, liberation theology. Follow it through. Do some reading. You know. You know. This is nothing you don't know. And you can do well. He's just oh, he's just being kind. Okay, say so. If you say so, um, I mentioned Thomas Horrocks earlier. He posted this yesterday. He said, "A little strange that so many of the folks who want to swing their Bible around to protest civil protections for gay marriage." Seem to skip right over the part where the scripture explicitly says that Christians aren't supposed to judge the sexuality of outsiders. I'm like, I don't remember that part. 
in fact, in fact, I, I remember an entire chapter um, that says that lists those sexual sins as the reason why the land spit them out and why God destroyed them was for that very reason. It's swing their Bible around <laughs> to protest, protect civil protections for gay marriage. You'll notice that, that liberals, leftists, the quote-unquote progressives, they're the same one. These are the same people who five years ago, we weren't talking about, we weren't talking about uh, gay marriage. No, well, okay, it was more than five years ago. Uh, but before Obergefell, we're not talking about changing marriage. We're not talking about uh, sexualizing children. We're not, we're not talking about mutilating kids. And then once it all happens, well, but it's just civil protections for freedoms. And, and There is absolutely no moral or ethical framework whatsoever within progressivism. It's just whatever the society says, we will, we will love you if you will do this. And that's what they're all about. I just don't know why these people call themselves Christians. I really don't. Do you think that's what Jesus was about? If Jesus was a progressivist, he could have avoided the cross quite easily. But he wasn't a progressivist. And he said, if you teach anybody to ignore and break the least of these commandments, you'll least in the kingdom of heaven. He somehow upheld God's moral law. In fact, he went to the cross to uphold God's moral law. That's the whole, whole point of it. And these folks don't have a moral law and have no foundation for a moral law. Speaking of churches and <clears throat> marriage, when this bill passes, Every church, you know, uh, Al Mohler said, started saying a few years ago, <coughs> there will be no place to hide. I don't think I'm coming down to anything. I did a absolutely insane race this morning. Well, maybe it's allergies, but I just worked as hard as I possibly could for just under 40 minutes. And when you breathe that deeply, that hard for that long, it takes you a while to, um, uh, to, to recover. Anyway, um, Al Mohler has been saying for a n- number of years, there's no place to hide. Every church is going to have to take a stand and say, this is where we stand on the issue of marriage and human sexuality. And of course, Schaefer had been saying that decades earlier. And for many years, a lot of people were saying, you need to have in your statement of faith a clear statement on this. And obviously, it's really neat if you have, as a part of your statement of faith, the ability to point to, and this is where we have stood for hundreds, even thousands of years. So. Now, not too many statements of faith in the past were intended to specifically address 
147 genders. <laughs> uh, we, we weren't expecting to deal with just complete societal insanity. But it is unquestionable what the Bible as a whole teaches on the subject of God created the male and female. And there's no room in the text for the next 145 genders. And so, but, but still, when, when I teach through the Didache or something like that, and we run across, when, when you go through the Didache and you, you see the prohibition against abortion, when you, when you see so many of the early writers uh, making reference to this, when you, um, same thing with uh, the Epistle to Diognetus, you can say, here, this is where Christians have been from the very start. And when you have a confession of faith, then you can say, and here, here's our, this particular group here. We utilize this. This is this many hundreds of years old. This is where we've stood for a long, long time. And it's obviously an advantage to be able to say, yeah, we're not, we're not just making this up on the fly in response to what's going on in our culture right now, which is brand new and does not have any claim to antiquity behind it at all. That's all great. But when I went on the Dr. Drew show, I did not quote my confession of faith. I quoted scripture. And when challenged, when, when my citation of scripture was challenged, I then said to them, well, the one who said those words has ultimate authority to say those things because he died and rose again and ascended into heaven and where he rules and reigns. (laughs) And nobody else has ever done that. So his authority trumps anybody else's. Now, there are all sorts of traditions and religious documents out there. But the ultimate authority of the claim of the Christian faith is found in Christ and his word. Everything else is secondary and derivative from that. And so it's, it's wonderful to have those things. It's wonderful to be able to demonstrate consistency over time on view of man and, and uh, sexuality and marriage and all that's fine and dandy. And certainly there are the people of the world assume that the Bible can just be interpreted any old way in the world, that there is, there's, there's no uh, objective meaning to be found in the text of Scripture. And sadly, it seems that there are Christians who feel the same way, that the only way to know the objective content of Scripture is through our confessions and traditions. But of course, we reject that and always have rejected that. And every time that, whether it's religious or non-religious people who have said, well, you know, that's just your interpretation. It's like, no, actually, um, it's interesting when Jesus was disputing with others in his day, uh, no one ever made that argument. No one ever said, well, Jesus, that's just your interpretation. Because they understood the words have meaning. 
and that that meaning is is so clear that God will hold you accountable for it. So in refuting the Sadducees, Jesus said, have you not read what God spoke to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. That was the end of the argument. That was the end of the argument. Oh, but it wouldn't be today on social media. <laughs> that tells you a little something about the level of social media. But that was the argument that was given. And so our confessions are wonderful things. They help us to communicate with others, but they are always secondary. And whenever we decide that what they actually enshrine becomes the substructure that no longer, that's no longer important for us to understand what the authors intended to communicate, we've completely lost our way. And there, there is no recovery from that. I mean, aside from just repentance and going, yeah, we were wrong about that. Well, we're, we're it, uh, that will collapse in and of itself over time. That's a, a, a an internally incoherent position. It's fundamentally contradictory to say we believe in sola scriptura, but that the intention of the authors, what they intended to communicate, doesn't matter, and we can't know. Um, every single doctrine that defines, for example, us as Reformed Baptists, the exegesis that derives at it is that exegesis. It's not some God's mind substructure exegesis. It's, oh, look, Romans 5.1 says, we have peace with God having been justified by faith. That's what Paul intended to communicate to the Romans in these words. And so we will look at dikaiosune, dikaiao. We'll look at zedekah. We will see the relationship between the Septuagint and the Greek New Testament. That's how we did it. And you're abandoning it in your great wisdom. You're abandoning it. Every one of you know that that's how you've defended the doctrine of justification in the past. Can you still do that? Or are you being inconsistent? Um, so... Steve Meister posted something yesterday. Lots of folks responded to it, thankfully. And it resulted in an interesting thread that I'm not sure if it's over yet. And I didn't, I didn't want to short circuit the thread by getting involved with it. So I stayed out of it. But between himself and a professor at uh, the Master's Seminary. And here's what uh, Steve Meister said. He's one of the pastors at... Um, up in Sacramento at the Reformed Baptist Church there. Um, churches that embrace biblicism will be defenseless in the coming cultural tumult. Well, coming? <laughs> uh, it seems like the it's the biblicist churches that have been the ones holding the line in the cultural tumult that's been going on for quite some time. But anyway. If you can redefine the church's doctrine of God on the basis of an individual's exegesis and speculation on the human author's intention, why not the nature of marriage? Now, I think it's important for us to consider what is being said in these words. First of all, 
when challenged, he gave, again, this definition of biblicism uh, that says you, you, you ignore all of church history, you ignore all the church fathers, and you only use biblical terminology. I don't know anybody who does it. I don't know anybody who does it. I think about 15 years ago, maybe a little bit more, I ran into a King James only guy who literally tried to only speak in King James English and only use biblical terms. You couldn't really talk with him. (laughs) I wonder how he orders a quarter pounder with cheese at McDonald's. I don't know. It's pretty weird. Um, But those people are... um, I don't know if anybody that fits that that description. I, I, I don't. I'm a reformed biblicist. I teach church history. And I, I seek to use language to communicate with, uh, with Muslims and, and with many others. So, um, but, re, but biblicism, if, you, if, you're, if you're hearing people using it in all these different ways, let's, let's once again point out the absolutely necessary biblicism for anyone who would be a Protestant. Anyone who would be a non-Catholic. And that is, God's truth flows from God's self-revelation. And that self-revelation is seen historically in the incarnation and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But normatively, so as to form the body of God's people, it occurs in Scripture. So there, there are historical events associated with that ongoing process of revelation. Exodus, Moses, Sinai, um, prophets, uh, destruction of Jerusalem, all the historical stuff. Okay. That becomes part of the matrix in, in which this revelation takes place. But God's revelation comes to us in Scripture. What we believe flows from Scripture. What we recognize as being binding is communicated to us in Scripture. And every one of us that is Reformed knows that when we go to Scripture, when we go to John chapter 6, and we walk through John chapter 6, and we make sure that we're paying attention to the flow of the argument that comes from the author who is speaking as a man. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we recognize this is John speaking. We recognize that John is connecting his words in John 6 with what's come before and what's going to come after. The book is a is a whole and is to be understood as a whole. And this is a key element of that book. And so we follow the argument as it is laid out to us, as we look at the grammar of the text, as we look at the lexical meanings of the words, we go and we look at Helcuso and we see that Helcuso 
isn't just a wooing, but it can be a powerful drawing, as in drawing nets up on the, on the shore. We, we do our lexicographical studies. We, we place it in the first century. We know where this took place. I've stood there outside the synagogue at Capernaum uh, where the boats would have been coming up on shore. We do all of that, and when we follow all of it through, there is a divine truth that is forced upon us by the clarity of the argumentation of the text. If you don't believe that, you're not reformed and stop lying to yourself. Right? So you know what we're talking about. Those of you who claim to be reformed, you know what we're talking about. You've been there. You've done it. You never walk through John chapter 6 with great tradition, exegesis. You never did it, because there ain't no such thing. There's no such thing. You will not find a consistent, great exegesis, exegesis, great tradition exegesis of John 6 that will be consistent. And it certainly won't be as clear as actually just exegeting John 6 or John 10 or John 17 or wherever you want to go. So Biblicism is simply accepting that scripture is theanustos and nothing else is. That's what Biblicism is. And to be a Reformed Biblicist living after the Reformation is to recognize God's been building his church. But the church is not Theonistos. The church is the bride that listens to the voice of her husband, and that voice is Scripture. That's that's where you're... So, that's why I'm a biblical Trinitarian, because the Bible teaches there's only one true God. The Bible teaches there are three divine persons identified as Yahweh. The Bible distinguishes between those three divine persons. That's what the doctrine of the Trinity is. It's a biblical doctrine. Oh, but but we've we've come to use other terminology to answer certain questions. Yes. But not to redefine the dog, doctrine itself. I've always defended the Trinity in that way, and I always will. And if I have to be put out by all the folks that want to do so, fine. I'm going to continue doing it. Pay the price. All right, fine. I believe the doctrine of the Trinity is a divine revelation. I don't believe it's simply the result of church tradition. If you want to, you know, we all we all used to be on the same page there. We're not anymore. Okay, fine. So, um, churches that embrace biblicism. So. I don't know of any church, and I bet you anything Steve Meister could not name you a single church that embraces the biblicism he later defined as being no church history, no confessions, no creeds. I suppose maybe there's a, you know, not even, not even the Calvary Chapel guys will do that. I mean, you know, they've, they've sometimes played with that kind of language, but yeah, no. What? Oh, yeah, well, he, he's... I'm left leaving him sit over there. Churches that embrace biblicism will be defenseless in the coming cultural tumult. Okay? Don't know who they are, but churches that are truly biblicist 
in the way I just defined it, will be the ones that stand firm in and have been standing firm uh, in the cultural tumult that's been going on for quite some time. Welcome to the battle, Brother Steve. It's, uh, it's not coming. It's already here. If you can redefine the church's doctrine of God on the basis of an individual's exegesis and speculation on the human author's intention. Now, thankfully, a lot of folk, folks zeroed in on speculation on the human author's intention. You need to, you need to hear, because I consider this extremely dangerous. Okay, I, I believe that Brother Meister is expressing the very things here that we need to avoid, and we need to know why we're avoiding it. We need to reject it. Say, we reject this because this will fundamentally deny sola scriptura. Okay, and here's why. What's behind these words? Speculation. Hmm. So, if... Well, let's, let's go ahead and use this. I, I think, I think this, this might be useful. I, I was going to try to get to some more of the um, Baptist dogmatics thing, but I, I, I'll have to hold it off. I sort of figured this would probably happen. But interesting conversation took place recently um, over some comments that were made uh, at a recent conference on Hebrews 9.14. Let me read you read you the text, and this will this will help you out a little bit. For nine thirteen, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? One of the key theological texts in all the Book of Hebrews. And what happened at this conference was a presentation was made, and the interpretation, this was the interpretation you give, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, and the interpretation was the eternal spirit is the spirit of Christ, his divine nature, that this is not a reference to the Holy Spirit. And so what you had being said is, here is Christ acting in his two natures. So you you have the offering of Christ, and then it's being made, the blood of Christ is the offering of Christ, and then who through the eternal spirit, that is his divine nature, offering the blood of the offering of the human nature. Okay. Cleansing your conscience. Well, it's interesting. Really interesting historically to, to, to look at this. Um, I see this as a Trinitarian reference. So you have Christ, you have the eternal spirit. Spirit's been mentioned earlier in Hebrews 9. Spirit of God, Holy Spirit. Uh, there's a there's a textual variant that actually puts uh, that term in, um, uh, and it, it, it don't have time to go into it right now. But 
it reflects the uh, Latin Vulgate. So this is what's interesting. Since the Latin Vulgate makes it clear that it's talking about the Holy Spirit, then the great tradition doesn't have this as, as its understanding. So I guess the great tradition is cool in some places, but not cool in other places. Because you could not have a great tradition interpretation that goes against the Vulgate because the Vulgate was the standard for 1,100 years and its reading led to the medieval, sort of medieval consensus on the interpretation of that text as to what was being referred to there. So much for great tradition ex Jesus. Yeah, we want it, fine, we're not, yeah, whatever. Now, you know, like I said, I think it is uh, clearly a Trinitarian text. But what we're doing here is we want to know what the author and whether the guy is at Jeopardy got this right or not, we'll leave to other people to argue. It was the final Jeopardy question a couple nights ago was it assumed that Paul wrote Hebrews. And one guy got it wrong because he said Romans, but they, they gave the answer Hebrews, assuming that Paul wrote Hebrews. So it actually changed the tournament. So it's made a big, big woo-hoo-wah uh, going on about that. But anyways, the point is, How can anyone say that what the author was intending to communicate through the use of these specific words, these very words, when he says, has dia numitas ioniu, we need to know what those words mean. And we can sit here and claim to know the mind of, I'm going to do the mind of God exegesis. (laughs) I've run into people who do the mind of God exegesis on the streets outside the temple in Salt Lake City, right? Um, Anybody can do that. But we need to know, because the reality is, whether you interpret this as the Holy Spirit or as Christ and his divine nature, both are orthodox. Both would fit into a confessional context. So does it just not matter? Or is the reality that no one can escape? We need to know what the author intended by the words hostia numitas aunia. Now, do I think the Holy Spirit? Do I think, do I believe that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they speak from God? Yeah, that's the whole point. But Paul still said, bring the bring the the parchments. Bring the parchments. That was Paul speaking. I don't need some mind of God exegesis to tell me what he meant. It's pretty clear. Now, this is a difficult text. Um this is a difficult text. It's the Traditional interpretation would be a Trinitarian reference, that this is the Holy Spirit. You're literally going against not only the 
Latin Vulgate inspired perspective, but Calvin, Calvin doesn't even recognize the other perspective. And most of the people that promoted are modern. Um, so I, I think it'd be fascinating to look at some of the patristic interpretations. That's all fascinating. But all that does is give you an idea of how someone at some point in the time understood this. That, that, that can never become the lens by which you determine these things. So when, when Meister says speculation on the human author's intention, he is fundamentally denying the centrality of the very method of exegesis that led to the Reformation itself. I don't think he intends to do that. I think he's just simply been swept up in this stuff. He seems to be someone that just sort of goes with it. I think he's been swept up in it. Maybe there's nobody that can speak into him and say, uh, really, brother, come on. But the assertion being made here is if you can redefine the church's doctrine of God. So what they're saying is if you don't buy all the speculation that Aquinas comes up with using Aristotelian categories on divine simplicity or inseparable operations or any of the rest of this stuff, that's redefining the church's doctrine of God. Thomas is now definitional for the church. And so if you don't write the, the phrase divine simplicity the way we do, then you can't know what the nature of marriage is in scripture. You see what's happened here? Speculative philosophical theology, not biblical revelation. These guys will never try, never, 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 never try to demonstrate that their extreme view of simplicity is what the apostles intended to communicate because they don't believe that. That's why they believe in, that's, that's where they do the backdoor natural theology stuff because they know that it was never the intention of an apostle to communicate that to anybody. They know that. They know that is an extended speculation that develops over time. It is not a part of the biblical text. That's why you have biblicism being attacked. That's why you have this type of thing going on. Now, what that, when you move away all the dust, what's being said here is that not only is the nature of marriage not clearly revealed in Scripture, but the doctrine of God is not clearly revealed in Scripture, and you need something else. You need something outside. You need tradition. And they, they, they may be loath to admit it, but that's what they're saying. That's where they're going. They need to stop. We've, some of us have been trying to you know, wave the, the red flag. Stop, stop, the bridge is out. <laughs> but it doesn't seem like people are listening. It doesn't seem like people are listening. So if you can redefine the church's doctrine of God on the basis of, individual, of an individual's exegesis and speculation of humans' authors' attention, the church's doctrine of God is based upon the revelation of God in Scripture. And if you do exegesis that seeks to understand that revelation in the context in which it was given, 
It is gloriously consistent. Gloriously consistent and fully defensible. And unlike you guys, I've defended both the doctrine of God and the doctrine of marriage against a wide variety of opponents on multiple contents, con- continents using the scriptures as my sole authority. And it can be done. And that's what we need to be doing. That's what we need to be doing. So, yeah. Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. And really, honestly, even if I had continued with the Baptist dogmatics things, I would have been getting into the exact same thing. But I wanted to throw, I wanted to touch on that uh, Romans, uh, Hebrews uh, 9.14 thing, because it's fascinating to me that the non-great tradition exegesis of the text was being promoted in defense of great tradition positions. And it just, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. But um, anyway, all right. So like I said, in 54 minutes, I'll be doing this all over again on a completely different subject. And uh, looking forward to doing that, like I said, down in Australia. So uh, look that up. I tweeted it yesterday and listen in and, and, Help me understand the Australian uh, because it'll be it'll be a real real challenge to do that. So, anyways, all right. Thanks for watching the program today. Uh, we'll see you about next week. Uh, the, like, we'll, we'll be changing stuff. We're probably, we're looking. We're definitely looking at a Monday program. Going to have some special guests in studio, and so you don't want to miss that. We will see you next time. God bless. <laughs>